Hi, mate. Hey, how are you? It's Jack. Uh, oh, is that who it is, right? Good. Right. Thought it was somebody else. I was wondering who it was that had entered our long-term memory WhatsApp group. It messaged me, sent me notes, asked me to record, gave me a time, and I was looking at the webcam. So, wonderful. Excellent. Thank fuck, it's Jack. Hi, mate. Um, I'm Colin. Yeah, it's, um, it's bonfire night. It's the 5th of November when the public get to hear this. We'll put it out tonight so the patrons can listen to it a little bit early if they're still up, because we're recording at 10 o'clock on the 4th of November. Yeah. Nothing changes. Some things don't change, Colin. So here we yeah. are. We're recording at 10 o'clock at night. We're probably going to talk for an hour. You'll need to edit it and put it up. So those patrons will get right good value for their money this week. <laughs> That'll be about 30 minutes early. <laughs> yeah, I think they'll get about four or five hours early. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so here, the, I was going to say there'll be no adverts in it. I, I don't know. I'm, I really don't understand my patrons are kicking about. We absolutely love you for doing it, and please, please don't we leave. We've got bills to pay. We've got bills to pay. We, 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 will, we will record some some bonus episodes and stuff like that coming up for patrons, but we're here to speak about, not particularly Bonfire Night, but like the whole sort of gunpowder treason and plot. Like we all, we all know Guy Fox, Colin. I asked you to go listen to a history podcast that I really enjoy to... Yeah. Like, get a bit of background about this, like, other than just sort of watch online and stuff like that, because two historians um, that I really enjoy do a podcast called, called The Rest is History, and you thoroughly hated the experience, so you did. I absolutely fucking detested the hour of my life. i tell you what, I, I listened to the hour of it in chunks because it was annoying me. I listened to about 20 minutes of it, uh, sat in my office while I was supposed to be working. I had 20 minutes in the car. I had 10 minutes while I was on a sunbed and I had 10 minutes in the car coming back again. And I just, listen, that's what they were talking about. was actually quite interesting. Um, There was a lot of little in-jokes that I suppose you get with a podcast that's got 500 other episodes and stuff. Little mentions they kept making to friends of the show and all this sort of stuff. Um, And I just didn't like their voices. And for, I think, 59 minutes of the hour that I was listening to it, I thought one of them was Spider-Man. Tom Holland. Yeah. And I couldn't understand how this fucking guy knew so much about history while he was, while he was being Spider-Man and being 20 years old. Um, no. Because you don't tend to get two people with the same name in Famous World now anymore. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not Spider-Man I've now found out since I looked at pictures of the two of them. No, um, it definitely isn't Spider-Man, no. Well, you, all this time you've been telling me that you listened to this podcast. I've always thought you listened to Spider-Man talking about history. No, mate. This is... Alongside the Heart and Hand, and I now subscribe to No Such Thing as a Fish on Apple subscriptions. This is the other podcast that I pay that I pay money for, and Chatterbix with David Errol and Joe Wilkinson. That's the that's the four podcasts I pay money for. So I pay about six ten. About twenty quid a month um, for premium podcasts. Yeah, I only I pay for uh, Heart and Hand, obviously. Uh, Wrestling Observer with Dave Meltzer. Pay a tenner a month for that. And Matt Morgan. A funny story, actually, before we get started. Um, yeah. Matt Morgan has had COVID and some other issues in these podcasts have become quite um, sporadic recently. Um, however, he posted free in the same day last week. Um, he just went on a mad like three times two hour podcast, so like six hour pod, six hours of podcast in the one day. And I wrote in the comments on on, on his Patreon, calm down, mate. 
uh, you're giving us too much content here, right? Because everybody had been slagging him for months and months about how bad it had been. So I kind of went the opposite way. Some person in the comments recognised me and wrote, ha ha, more content than heart and hand. <laughs> That's mad. Uh, like, that, fucking hell. Like, it's crazy because I think the people that pay for podcasts pay for podcasts because Chatterbox put out like a shout out. They were looking for like contributors. And they were looking for like a true crime person, so I, I kind of typed. Um, I occasionally cover true crime on my own podcast, and I don't know what Simon it is because there's a few Simons that subscribe to our podcast commented under that saying, "Get this guy on your podcast." Um, he knows <laughs> That's all pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So I, I generally think that there's a sort of uh, genre of people that well are quite happy to pay for good podcast content and the 40, 45 a year or whoever, however many there is are obviously in that category. So yes, thanks for subscribing and um, keep uh, keep giving us money to um, so we can live this lavish lifestyle that we love calling. But uh, back to the gunpowder plot, 1605 mate, so black and white times for you and that mm. uh, I do kind of apologise. There's not going to be a hell of a lot of laughs in this one. It's going to be pretty... Um, just a story. We're, we're going to go into, like, obviously, the, the sort of the plot, but a bit of religion, you know. We're going to be using words as well that are, like, papist, for example, that generally you wouldn't kind of get away with, but it was just words that were used at that time. We'll speak about the plot, the sort of recruitment, all the guys, because it wasn't just Guy Fox. There was tons of them. Uh, they're planning... The like the actual discovery of it, and then sort of the executions and stuff like that. So we'll we'll bar on through this, Colin. So like I said, this was back in 1605, uh, also known as the Jesuit treason. Ever heard it called that until now? Yeah, the Jesuit treason. Ah, okay. Yeah. Right, okay. It's a failed assassination attempt against King James the First by a group of. Uh, English Catholics, basically, led by a guy called Robert Catsby, who was looking to restore the Catholic monarchy of England um, after decades of persecution against Catholics. So the plan then basically was to blow up the Houses of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November 1605, um, which was a prelude to the popular revolt in the Midlands during which King James's nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, was to be installed as the Catholic head of state. Uh, Caspi may have embarked on the scheme after hopes of securing greater religious tolerance under King James had faded, leaving many English Catholics disappointed. Um, yeah, so I, I, I understand at this time the, the number of English Catholics was massively dwindling as well, Jack, as I understand right. Yeah, I, th- I think it was, you know. I think um, being a Protestant was kind of more popular at the time. And if you were a Catholic, you were kind of treated like a bit of dog shit. Um, especially because the monarch at the time would have been Protestant. And I think Elizabeth was... Now, this is going off memory, and people will dig me up for it. I think Elizabeth's mother... So I think King James married a Catholic, but he was a Protestant. So right. a lot of the people all the time wanted Elizabeth to then become a monarch because they thought that the, the Catholics... She would treat the Catholics a lot better than like a lot of other... Um, people that were sort of in line to the throne would have. Yeah. So there's a bit of support behind Elizabeth, but King James was a Protestant at the time, and let's say Catsby 
Uh, it wasn't just Catsby, but there was a lot of contributors. Uh, John and Christopher Wright, Robert and Thomas Winter, Thomas Percy, Guy Fox, the most famous one, Robert Keyes, Thomas Bates, John Grant, Ambrose Rockwood, which is the coolest name ever, Sir Everard Digby. <laughs> Where have I heard that name before? Ever, Ever Digby. Sounds like a porn star. Yeah, Maybe may, may in Francis Tresham, basically. Fox, who we're going to sort of not focus on, we're going to try and expand your knowledge here a little bit, but he did have 10 years military service um, fighting against uh, in the Spanish uh, Netherlands um, sort of Dutch revolt type war. Um, he was given charge of the explosives and that's kind of why he was caught and we will get to that as we go, as we get further on into the story. It's the, the thing about this as well, though, the plot was revealed to the authorities in an anonymous letter which was sent to William the pa- William Parker, uh, the fourth Baron Mont Eagle. And this happened on the 26th of October, 1605. This led to a search occurring of the House of Lords uh, on the 4th of November, 1605. So they got, they got the, the warning and they waited nine or ten days to do anything about it, which is a bit bizarre. Um, but what that happened was they discovered Fox uh, looking after... 36 barrels of gunpowder, um, enough in actual fact to reduce the House of Lords to rubble. Uh, he was arrested. Uh, most of his co conspirators fled away from London as soon as they found out the plot had been discovered and they tried to enlist support for their cause along the way. Um, several made a stand against the pursuing Sheriff of Worcester and his men at Holbesh House. And in that ensuing battle, Catsby was one of those shot and killed um, at the trial on the 27th of January 1606. Eight of the survivors, including Fox, were convicted, Jack, and what that meant at that time was they were hung, they were drawn, and they were quartered. Yeah, that's pretty nasty work. Do you know how they figured out that 36, if you listen to the podcast that I told you to, or not told you to, like asked you to, do you know how they figured out that the the 36 barrels of gunpowder would have absolutely reduced the House of Lords to rubble? Do you remember how they figured that out? I can't remember how they figured out, but I remember, I remember on it it said that the the gunpowder was actually so old that it wouldn't have worked anyway. Yeah, it wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't have worked. I think it was wet, but um, if it was dry, they done an experiment. Uh, the guy that used to be in Top Gear, the wee guy. Uh, oh yeah, Richard Hammond. Yes, he done right. sort of exploding Parliament or something. Yeah, you know, some sort of TV series that sort of proved that it would have absolutely fucked things up. So details of the assassination attempt were allegedly known by um, the principal Jesuit of England, uh, Father Henry Garnet at the time. Although he was convicted of treason and sentenced to death, doubt has been cast of like how much he actually knew of the plot because I think there was previous plots that he did know about and told people that he knew and then because he'd already told people about previous plots people didn't believe him when he said I didn't know about this plot. Right, okay. Like, so he had previous for knowing about plots and then suddenly didn't know about this one. But uh, his existence was revealed to him through a confession. Uh, Garnet was prevented from informing the authorities by the absolute confidentiality of the confessional, basically. Although anti-Catholic legislation was introduced soon after uh, the discovery of the plot, many important and loyal Catholics retained high office during King James I's reign. I'm not sure... I'm- Oh, you go, mate. Sorry. I was going to just say, I, I'm sure there's been a change made to the whole confessional process now, where your confession is absolute and it is confidential unless you reveal something that could harm another. And I think there has been a change now in the church where 
they actually do go away and tell people now if they hear something like that. So if you go into the confession booth and you say, oh, I just hate my life, I've got myself a gun, I'm going to take it to school tomorrow, sort of yeah. thing, the priest would at that point do something, apparently, which is good. Obviously, back then, it was just absolute, and there was no wriggle room, so to speak, from their little confidentiality booth. No, I don't think... No, there definitely wasn't. It was a case of, like, I, I tell you this in confidence, and if you do that, God will smite you down or whatever. I think... I don't want to go into it too much, but that's how the, the, the Catholic Church held so much power for so long was because they knew, basically knew everybody's secrets. And they could hold, <laughs> yeah. that, they could hold that over people. They really could. Re, religion in England back then um, was kind of, like, the, the whole narrative behind this, like, whole story basically is Protestants versus Catholics. And between like, 1533 and 1540, King Henry VIII, uh, we all know about him, he took over. Uh, control of the English church from Rome, basically, when I want to control it. And this started several decades of religious tension in England. English Catholics struggled in society, dominated by newly uh, separate and increasingly Protestant Church of England. And Henry's daughter, who was Queen Elizabeth I, uh, responded to the growing religious divide by introducing the Elizabethan religious settlement, which required anyone appointed to a public or church office to swear their allegiance to the monarch as the head of church and state, basically saying, look, uh, you can't be a Catholic. The penalties, like for refusal, were pretty severe at the time. You could get a fine, um, and repeat offenders basically risked imprisonment or eventually execution. And Catholicism basically became marginalised uh, in Britain. But despite the threat of torture and execution and stuff like that, there were still some priests that continued to practice their faith, well they had to do it in secret, basically. Yeah, well, as they should continue. Can't be telling people not to do things. No. Um, what we'll do is we'll take a bit, a bit of a more in-depth look then at the actual plot, what they actually planned to do, how they came to this conclusion, how they planned it, and then what actually happened. So the the main idea of this plot, Jack, was the conspirators' principal aim was basically to kill the king, King James. Yeah. Um, but they had the added bonus of many other important targets would also be present because it was a state opening. That meant that the monarch's nearest relatives would be there, members of the Privy Council would be there, all the senior judges of the English legal system, the Protestant across, across the aristocracy. Oh, man! Aristocracy, um, you'll get it. I struggle that word every time. And uh, the bishops of the Church of England would all have attended in their capacity as members of the House of Lords. You'd also have general members of the House of Commons there. So you've basically got a chance to wipe out everybody you pretty much stand against in one swoop with all this gunpowder. They had another objective as well, which was kidnapping the king's daughter, Elizabeth. Uh, she was housed at Coombe Alley near Coventry, uh, which was just 10 miles north of Warwick, which was convenient for them, because most of them, Jack, lived in the Midlands. Uh, so once the king and his parliament were dead, the plotters like intended to install Elizabeth as the English throne, uh, basically make her queen. Uh, the fate of her brothers, Henry and Charles at the time, would be like improvised. They were just going to make it up, basically, in their role. Uh, in state ceremonies was as yet pretty uncertain. The plotters planned to use a guy called Henry Percy, who was at the time the ninth Earl of Northumberland, as Elizabeth Regent, basically, because obviously a nine year old girl can't be like can't run the fucking country, basically, so they wanted to get Henry in charge there. But they never actually told him this. <laughs> they kept that secret. We're going to put you in charge of the country, but we're not telling you, basically. I'll tell you, I'll tell you about it later, mate. Yeah. Um Obviously, to make this happen, they had to get a, a merry man, a merry band together, and this is how the recruitment happened. Um, a lot more, a lot more difficult back then than it would be now. You can't really just pop onto LinkedIn and look for a terrorist. <laughs> um, 
Robert Catesby, uh, born 1573, uh, was a man of ancient, historic and distinguished lineage. Um, he was the inspiration behind the plot. He was described by his contemporaries as a good-looking man, about six feet tall, athletic and a good swordsman. Sounds about like you, Jack. Um, Thanks. <laughs> uh, maybe just take out the swordsman and change it to bowler. Um, yeah. But along with several other conspirators, he took part in the Essex Rebellion in 1601, uh, during which he was wounded and captured. However, Queen Elizabeth allowed him to escape with his life and find him at 4,000 marks. The equivalent nowadays, Jack, of six million quid. Mm-hmm. Um, he sold his estate in Chasselton and he helped to organise a mission to the new king of Spain, Philip III. He urged Philip to launch an invasion attempt on England. We assured him that he'd be well supported, particularly by all the English Catholics. Yeah, one of the sort of main guys was Thomas Winter, and he was chosen as the missus. We're really bad at uh, saying these words. Emissary, uh, but the Spanish king. He was sympathetic to the plight of the Catholics in England, was pretty intent on making peace with James at the time. He didn't want, they, like, during this, there was, like, England and Spain were at war, and James kind of wanted to, to put that to bed, and this guy um, wanted to do that as well. Winter had also attempted to convince the Spanish envoy, Don Juan uh, de Tassis. <laughs> yes, the most Spanish name ever. Don Juan, nice. <laughs> Don Juan, uh, that about 3,000 Catholics were ready and waiting to support such an invasion. Uh, concern was voiced at the time by Pope uh, Clement VIII that using violence to achieve a restoration of Catholic power in England would result in the destruction of those that remained. So, like, he was pretty close in. He was like, if we try to take this over and we fail, all the Catholics are going to get persecuted really badly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's do or die, up. basically. It's all or, yeah. all or nothing here. Yeah, exactly. Um, according to contemporary accounts of the time, in February 1604, Catsby invited a guy called Thomas Winter, as you just discussed, to his house in Lambeth, where they discussed his plan to re-establish Catholicism in England by blowing up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament. Winter was known as a competent scholar. He was able to speak several languages, and he'd fought with the English army in the Netherlands. His uncle, a fellow called Francis Ingleby, had been executed for being a Catholic priest in 1586, and Winter himself had later converted to Catholicism afterwards. Yeah, and our guy was called uh, John Wright. He was a pretty devout Catholic at the time, and at the time was said to be one of the best bowlers of his day. No, swordsman of his day, sorry. And a man... a, I see that as a totally different thing now. A swordsman now means you're a bad shagger. Yeah, <laughs> I, so, maybe John Wright was a mad shagger, you know. Yeah, um, so. he, he was like, he was pals with Catsby and they'd taken part in uh, the Earl of Essex Rebellion again three years before this. He had reservations, but despite these over the possible, like, he, again, he thought the repercussions should they attempt fail. Um, would be pretty fucked up. He did agree to join the conspiracy, perhaps persuaded by Catsby's rhetoric. Let us give the attempt, and where it faileth, pass no further. So basically, like a, it sounds like a suicide mission. He's saying, look, we we'll try it, and if it fails, we're fucked. That's basically what he's getting at there, this Catsby guy. Um, he seems like some sort of, not a brainwasher, but not like a, a terrorist nowadays, like getting people on board by saying, fuck it, we go for it. Praise, praise be to God, and if God doesn't protect us, then we're fucked. We're going yeah, down. I think it's it's one of those ones, isn't it? If you're if you believe your cause has been kind of dragged down and it's been it's on its arse, basically, and it's not been allowed to flourish and all that sort of stuff, then I suppose the sort of risk reward strategy is a little bit higher than normal, isn't it? Because 
if it, if it, if it doesn't work, then you're already in a bad place. You're already not happy with your lot. So it's worth it's worth trying to improve it. So I can I can totally see it. Um, Winter then travelled to a place called Flanders uh, to inquire about Spanish support. When he was there, he sought out a fella called Guy Fox, yes. um, a committed Catholic who'd served as a soldier in the Southern Netherlands under the command of William Stanley, and who in 1603 had been recommended for a captaincy. So he's, he's kind of a big deal, old guy. Yeah. Um, he was accompanied by John Wright's brother, uh, Christopher. Uh, Fox had been a member of the 1603 delegation to the Spanish court, pleading for an invasion of England. Winter told Fox that some good friends of his wished his company in England and that certain gentlemen were a pawn to a resolution to do somewhat in England if the peace with Spain helped us not. And I am reading that as it is written, and it's written in, I think, some sort of kind of Gaelic, Scots sort of language, I think. Is, is, would I be right in saying that, Jack? It would have just been the language of the time, basically. Like, I, I don't, I wouldn't, again, I, I think like we used to speak French, quite a lot back then, but I think this is some sort of English that they're trying to speak here, yeah. So, so these so two guys... England, come... English, yeah, so England is spelled with an I rather than an E. Um, do is D-O-E. Uh, friends is F-R-E-N-D-S. It's it's very close to being right, but not quite. It's a bit, dare I say it, I'm not going to say that. It's just a bit wrong. Yeah, like, to be fair, like, friends without an I still says friends, so uh, I'm, all, I'm all for that. I'm all for simplifying it, basically. <laughs> These two guys returned to England in April 1604, um, telling Catsby that Spanish support was unlikely. Uh, Thomas Percy, Catsby's friend and John Wright's brother-in-law, was introduced to the plot several weeks later. Percy had found employment uh, with a kinsman, uh, the Earl of Northumberland, and by 1596 was his agent for the family's northern estates, basically running his sort of, um, like, the, the underling, basically, to the Earl of Northumberland. And around about 1601, he served um, with his patron in the Low Counties, and at some point during Northumberland's command in the Low Counties, Percy became his agent in communications with James Percy. Um, he was reputedly a serious character who had converted to the Catholic faith, so he wasn't a Catholic, and then decided to become one. His early years were, according to a Catholic source, marked by a tendency to rely on his sword and personal courage. So he was a bit of a hard man. Northumberland, although not a Catholic himself, planned to build a strong relationship with James I in order to better the prospects of English Catholics. So he was like a sympathiser without being uh, actually being a Catholic. And he also wanted to reduce the family disgrace caused by his separation from his wife, Martha Wright, who was one of uh, Queen Elizabeth I's favourites. Yeah, I think I don't think Guy Fawkes started his life as a Catholic either. I think right. he was a Protestant that changed over to Catholicism when he was about nine years old. Apparently, he first started, he first found religion himself as a quite a young man, and popped himself over to the other side. Um, which I think when people do that, that's often how things like this happen because they've, they've been so driven to do something, they've made a change, and then they yeah. get over the head. I think a lot. That's how you get a lot of these sort of terrorists that join the cause and aren't necessarily. They're not the same people we would expect to join the course, the cause, if you know what I mean. So yeah, kind of it's a weird one. Yeah, not born um, and bred, but yeah, flipped. Yeah, yeah. I, I flipped. Yeah, or um, influence, maybe I don't know. Um, Thomas Percy had meetings with James, and they seemed to go well. Uh, Percy returned with promises of support for the Catholics, and then Northumberland believed that James would go so far as to allow mass in private houses so as not to cause public offence. Percy was keen to improve his standing. He went further, claiming that the future king would guarantee the safety of all English Catholics. Well, that's it. When it comes to these sort of plots and stuff like that, 
well, it's called a plot for a reason. You need to put some sort of planning into it. So the first meeting between the five, there was only five of them at the time, uh, took place on the 20th of May, Section 04, probably at a place called, sounds like a place you would hear nowadays, just like a, a pub somewhere, uh, the Duck and Drake Inn, which was just over the Strand, uh, which is quite... Is that not quite a fancy place now down in England, the Strand? Yeah, it is, yeah it's, it is pretty fancy, yeah. I believe that kind of that naming convention of pubs just came about from things that were nearby them. So that pub must have been quite near water, and there was ducks and drakes about, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. So uh, Winter's usual residence when staying in London uh, was the Duck and Drake Inn. So he obviously, I don't know if he was a landlord, I don't know. He's, I probably could have looked at his background, but I don't know his background, so he stayed either in this pub or near it, basically. Um, so there was Catsby, Winter, John Wright, they were in attendance, and then Guy Fox and Thomas Percy were there as well. They went into their private room, and the five rooms swore an oath of secrecy on a prayer book, which I think back then was like a pinky promise or whatever, you know. Um, and by coincidence, um, and ignorant of the plot, this guy, the Jesuit, Father John Gerard, who was a friend of Catsby's, was celebrating Mass just next door, basically. Um, and the five men at the time received the Eucharist, which I could have looked more into, but I imagine it's some sort of Catholic blessing to say, mm-hmm. on you go. The Eucharist is basically just them getting their communion, basically. Right, so okay, so a little it's... bit of bread. A little bit of bread, a little bit of wine, and that that'd be quite a major thing because obviously they couldn't go and do that anymore anywhere. So right. the fact that this priest was celebrating mass in that room, it's probably a big deal to them. They were getting to go and get the body of Christ, get the blood of Christ, sort of thing. Do you think at the time then that would have given them some sort of like not serendipity, but just like okay, now he's here by accident. This shows us that God is on our side, or something like that. It must possibly, have given, yeah, must have possibly. Plus, by the fact that they're in a pub and they're, 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 there's a guy in this pub in another room, quite able, feeling safe enough to have mass, tells them this is what our future could be. This is what we could be doing all the time. Yeah, cool. cool. So it, it, it does kind of, it, it does, it does sort of make sense. Um, the whole thing, just where I got it, my little bit here, the secrecy on a prayer book thing is amazing. It's amazing to me. I did jury duty a couple of months ago in 2022, and we still had to swear on the Bible at the start. You had an option to swear on the Bible, or you could swear on, you could just swear on something else if you wanted. But you're swearing a book with paper in it and printed words. It's 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 a nonsense. That's something they still do in a court of law, as if it actually means something to most people. Yeah, like there are. I I've not, um, I've never been called up as a witness. Um, I was meant to be called up as a witness many many years ago. Um, but I never did. But yeah, there's that, there's that option, or like you say, there's the other option where you say, I don't believe in a God, I'm not going to swear in that. It's a, a lot of nonsense type of thing. Um, and you can swear in something else. You're just basically, again, pinky promise. A pinky it's promise. Bullshit, yeah. yeah, absolute nonsense, basically. Yeah. Um, going back to the plot, then the details of this plot were finalised in October of that year. Uh, that was 1604, for those to keep in track. And uh, it was done in a series of taverns and pubs across London and at Daventry. Fox was going to be the guy left to light the fuse, and then the plan was that he would escape across the Thames. Well, simultaneously, a revolt in the Midlands would help to ensure the capture of the King's daughter Elizabeth. Fox would leave for the continent, and he would explain events in England to all the European Catholic powers. One thing you don't really think about uh, is that these people have wives, basically. 
and like some of these wives were kind of involved. Like they, they must have maybe not known the full scale of things, but um, one of the wives involved was called Anne Vaux, who's a friend of Garner, and she would often shield priests at home. She became increasingly concerned that by what they suspected was about to happen. So the wives kind of like, ah, wait a minute, are you really going to... Like, I, I kind of heard you talking about dynamite and stuff. Like, is this what's going to happen? And several of the conspirators alongside the wife um, expressed worries about the safety, again, of fellow Catholics who would be present in Parliament on the day of the planned explosion. Because let's be honest, th- this is like, it's like a 9-11 they're planning. It's like, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's, it's, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're there, tough titties. We want to cannon, get into... Cannon fodder, basically. Yeah. Basically, cannon fodder. And Percy was concerned for his um, his pal, uh, Northumberland, and the young Earl of uh, Ordinal's name was brought up. Catsby suggested that a minor uh, wound might keep him from the chamber on that day. So they're trying to... They're kind of trying to blow up everybody, trying to save people at the same time. Hello, friends. Colin here the looks, the charm and the brains behind Drunk Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate Life is a little bit shit just now, and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people, then we will. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrongtermmemory, and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad-free, and lots of bonus content. You know? Lovely people. Yeah. Um, the the Lord Vaux, uh, Montague, Montague and Storton were also mentioned. He suggests warning Lord Mordman, his wife's employer, to derision from Catsby. So what she did was on Saturday the 26th of October, Montagle, who was Tresham's brother-in-law, arranged a meal in a long-disused house at Hoxton. Suddenly a servant appeared saying he'd been handed a letter for Lord Montagle from a stranger in the road. Montagle ordered it to be read aloud to the company. By the pre-arranged manoeuvre, Francis Tresham sought at the same time to prevent the plot and forewarn his friends. The letter said as follows. My Lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this Parliament. For God and man have concurred to punish the wickedness of this time, and think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country, where you may escape the event in safety. For though there will be no appearance of any stir, Yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This council is not to be condemned because it may do you good and can do you no harm. For the danger is past as soon as you have burnt this letter, and I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. Right, to me, that sounds like a pretty clear warning. Don't fucking go near there that day. But (laughs) this Montague guy... uh, seemed to be uncertain in the letter's meaning. Uh, so he jumped on his horse at the time. You couldn't get an Uber <laughs> for a call. And he rode to Whitehall and handed it to the Earl of Salesbury at the time. And Salesbury informed the Earl of Worcester, um, considered to have, again, sympathies. And the suspected Catholic Henry Howard, who was the first Earl of Northampton. But he kept the news of the plot from the King. So he wanted to, like, 
feels like he wanted to tell people, but didn't want to tell the top guy um, what was actually happening. Uh, the king, anyway, was he was busy hunting in Cambridgeshire at the time, and he wasn't expected back um, for several days, anyway. Um, back in the day, they had servants, so Montagle's servant was called Thomas Ward, um, and, and he had family connections with the Wright brothers. He sent a message to Catsby about the Patel, and Catsby, who had been due to go hunting with the king, suspected that Tresum was responsible for the letter. And with Winter, confronted the recently um, recruited conspirator, basically. Tresham managed to convince the pair that he had read the letter, so that wasn't me, um, don't fuck me up, but urged him to abandon <laughs> the plot. <laughs> Salisbury uh, was already aware of certain uh, stirrings before he received the letter, uh, but didn't particularly know the exact nature of the plot or who exactly was involved and he therefore elected to wait and see basically how it, how it unfolded but it did eventually get um, discovered basically the, the plot It always does Jack, as I always found out and like you said they're trying to they're telling each other but they're all too scared to tell the king but they'll know as with any other rumour, if you tell enough people the rumour the person you want to hear it will find it out eventually and that's what happened uh, the letter finally found its way to the King on Friday the 1st of November, following his arrival back in London. Upon reading it, King James immediately seized upon the word below and felt that it hinted at some strategic of fire and powder. Very astute, this King. Um, perhaps an explosion exceeding in violence, the one that killed his father, uh, Lord Darnley, um, not at Kirk Field in 1567. Keen not to seem too intrigued, and he wanted to allow the king to take the credit for unveiling the conspiracy, Salisbury feigned ignorance. The following day, though, members of the Privy Council visited the king at the Palace of Whitehall and informed him that based on the information that Salisbury had given him a week earlier, on Monday, the Lord Chamberlain Thomas Howard, the first Earl of Sussex, would undertake a search of the Houses of Parliament, both above and below. You mentioned a guy there called Lord Darnley. I genuinely think... Do you know the place next to it's called Darnley? I do know it, yeah. It's also got a place in it called South Park Village. Yeah, I think it's named after this guy, Lord Darnley. It could be, yeah. Who is the, who is the father of James King James I? Yeah, because I'm pretty sure there's Crookston Castle just across the road from me. Yeah. I'm positive that I read in there that Lord Darnley had something to do with that. And at a point in history, Queen... Yeah, I can hear you typing stuff away. I'm pretty sure that Queen Elizabeth might have been, might have holed up at Crookston Castle at some point in history for a for a short period of time. I'm not 100 percent sure. Anyway, a couple of days I, I, before, I, I'm, just, I'm actually just looking this up to see if it is true, if it is true or not. Um, it was named after. It became uh, owned by a guy called Sir John Stuart of Darnley. Right, okay, my um, Who later became the Earl of Lennox. Um, it's actually quite interesting, I'm going to read that later on, because it starts talking about Lords Kings and stuff. It's only five paragraphs, and the first one is about that, and the last paragraph tells you there's a big Sainsbury's there. <laughs> so it's quite a <laughs> it's quite a jump in the, the world of Darnley, that page. So I'm going to check that out later on. So on the 3rd of November, a couple of days before... They were meant to blow shit up. Um, Percy Catsby and Winter had a final meeting. Percy told his colleagues that they should be, uh, they should abide the uttermost trial and reminded them of their ship waiting at anchor by the Thames, basically. The next day, Digby was uh, ensconced with a hunting, a hunting party, sorry, 
at Dunchurch, uh, ready to abduct Queen Elizabeth. So all the plans are sort of getting put in place. The same day, Percy visited the Earl of Northumberland again, who was uninvolved in the conspiracy, to see if he could discern what rumours surrounded the letter uh, to Montego. Percy returned to London and assured Winter, John Wright and Keyes uh, that they had nothing to be concerned about when returned to his lodgings uh, on Grey's Inn Road. The same evening, Catsby, likely to be accompanied by John Wright and his brother uh, and his pal Bates, set off for the Midlands and uh, this is when Fox visited Keyes uh, and was given a pocket watch left by Percy to time the fuse. So even back then, they, they could chop time things, supposedly, and an hour later, Rockwood received several engraved swords from a local cutler at the time, basically, ready to fight if they get caught. There's two accounts of the numbers of searches uh, that occurred at the Houses of Parliament and the timings of them. According to the King's version... The first search of the building in and around Parliament was made on Monday, 4th of November, as the plotters were busy making their final preparations. Um, by Suffolk, Monteagle and John Winnard, they found a large pile of firewood in the undercroft beneath the House of Lords, accompanied by what they presumed to be a serving man, Guy Fox. He told them that the firewood belonged to his master, Thomas Percy. They left to report their findings, at which time Fox also left the building, the mention of Percy's name aroused further suspicion, as he was already known to the authorities as a Catholic agitator. Uh, so the king was getting a little bit fucking itchy at the time, and he insisted that a more thorough search be undertaken. And late that night, the search party, headed by a guy called Thomas Kinvert, returned to the undercroft, and they again found Fox there, dressed this time really inconspicuously, inconspicuously in a cloak and a hat and wearing boots and spurs. He was immediately arrested, whereupon uh, he gave his name as John. <laughs> John Johnson. <laughs> What's your name? Uh, Pete Peterson. John Johnson. Basically <laughs> shot himself. <laughs> he was carrying a lantern, um, which is now held in a museum down in Oxford, and a search of his person revealed this pocket watch and several slow matches in touchwood. 36 barrels of gunpowder were discovered hidden under a pile of coal, um, and Fox was taken to the King early on the morning of 5th of November. So, obviously the plotters hear about this, and see when you, you get caught out back then doing something, you shake yourself and you, you basically fucking try to run away. Yeah, you scatter. Um, Scatter, yes. <laughs> uh, as news of John Johnson's arrest spread amongst the plotters that were still in London, most fled northwest along Watling Street. Christopher Wright and Thomas Percy left together, Rockwood left soon after, and they managed to cover 30 miles in two hours on one horse. Hmm? That's, that's, is that three of them sat in the one horse? Um, Christopher Wright, th- Thomas Percy, Rockwood. Mm, I don't know, mate. I don't know. 30 miles and towers on one horse is impressive. That poor yeah. bastard horse. Yeah. Um, he overtook Keyes, who'd set off earlier, and then right and Percy. <laughs> right past him, well, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> you stay there. You, like, uh, see if a bear attacks you, you don't need to run fast. You just need to be, to be able to run faster than the slowest person. That's it. And this is exactly what this guy's done. <laughs> yeah. My horse is faster than your horse. Um, he then caught up with Catsby, John Wright and Bates on the same road. Reunited, the group continued northwest to Dunchurch, using horses provided then by Digby. Keyes went to Mordaunt's house at Drayton. Meanwhile, Thomas Winter stayed in London and even went into Westminster to see what was happening. The bold, bold bastard. Um, when he realised the plot had been uncovered, he took to his horse and made for his sister's house at Norbrook before continuing to Huddington Court. 
Yeah, so on the 5th of November, the Parliament was meant to begin, basically, and the King um, should have come, come in person, uh, but he refrained, obviously, um, through a practice that, like, obviously, they get, that got discovered and the King went, I'm not going there. Um, the plot would have blown up the King um, such at such a time, so the tight time, precisely, that he'd been sat on the royal throne, basically. So it would have, like, he would have been sitting there and like, blown his ass up, but he would have been accompanied at the time by all these children, nobility and commoners, um, assisted by bishops, judges, doctors, uh, and at one instant the blast would have ruined the whole state and kingdom of of England, basically. And for the effect of this, they were placed under the Parliament House, right below it, uh, where the king should sit. So genuinely would have blown him fucking skyward. Um, under like I say, there was thirty, so they had thirty six barrels, and thirty of them were like directly under the throne. <laughs> Let's fuck this guy up. Um, under sort of wood, iron, coal, I think back in the day called faggots, which is something that you would like, like kindling almost. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And well, I'll let you read this as well. So it was an extract from a letter from Sir Edward Hobby who um, was a gentleman of the bedchamber. That sounds pretty sexy. Um, so he wrote this letter to Sir Thomas Edwards, who was the ambassador at Brussels at the time. Um, so, yes. Yeah. Do we have that, actually? No, yeah. we don't. Have, do we? Uh, yeah, yeah, there's an, an extract from it here. Right, okay. Uh, um, the group of six... Oh, no, it's, it's not, actually. Uh, no, it's not. That's that. Right. There's an there's an extract of the letter on the website page. We've not got it here. Right. Okay. Um, that's okay. It's nothing important. It's just saying somebody tried to blow us up. Yep. Um, the group of six conspirators stopped at Ashby St Ledger's at about six p.m. when they met Robert Winter and updated him on the situation. They then continued on to Dunchurch and met with Digby. Catsby convinced him that despite the plot's failure, an armed struggle was still a real possibility. He announced to Digby's hunting party that the King and Salisbury were dead before the future has moved west to Warwick. Yeah, so like, even though London's massive, and it was big back then, this is when Chinese whispers started, or like, news of the plot was spreading basically, and the authorities set extra guards on the city gates, closed the ports, and protected the house of the Spanish ambassador, which was surrounded by an angry mob at the time, because I think, at the time, like it, it might have sparked a, a rumour, we're at war with the Spanish, and it's the Spanish cunts that are trying to do this. <laughs> so that's kind of spread like wildfire. But an arrest warrant was eventually issued against Thomas Person, his patron, again, the Earl of Northumberland. Uh, he was placed under house arrest. And, and John Johnson, uh, he was still sticking by his story, Guy Fox at the time. Um, his initial interrogation, he revealed nothing more than the name of his mother, and it was from Yorkshire. I don't think, even even back then, you probably couldn't hide that accent. Um, you couldn't say it. I'm from Scarborough, right? <laughs> um, but he, he never denied. He never like denied his intentions. And Johnson, uh, Fox stated that it had been his purpose to destroy the King and Parliament. So he's basically fessing up to it. Nevertheless, he maintained his composure and insisted that he'd acted alone. So he's trying to say, um, "I'm Billy Big Time. It was all me." And his unwillingness to yield um, impressed the King that he described him as possessing a Roman. Resolution. So even though he kind of knew he was lying, he's like, right, I respect you, but you're no shite yourself. You're no like grass, basically. Yeah. No like grass. <laughs> um, obviously, this led to an investigation, pretty immediately so, on the 6th of November. The Lord Chief Justice, a guy called Sir John Popham, which is ironic, uh, oh. a man with a deep seated <laughs> hatred of Catholics, apparently, but called yeah. Popham, 
Um, he questioned Rockwood <laughs> servants. By the evening, he had learned the names of several of those involved in the conspiracy. Catsby, Roxwood, Keys, Winter, John and Christopher Wright, and Grant. Johnson, though, meanwhile, persisted with his story, and along with the gunpowder he was found with, he was moved to the Tower of London, where the king had decided that Johnson would be tortured. The use of torture was forbidden, except by royal prerogative, or a body such as the Privy Council or Star Chamber. In a letter on the 6th of November, James wrote, the gentle torturers are said to be first used onto him, and so God speed your good work. Johnson may have been placed in manacles and hung from the wall, but he was almost certainly subjected to the horrors of the rack as well. On 7th of November, his resolve was broken, and he confessed later that day and again over the following two days. So he's not a grass jack, but when you strap him to a wall and then start stretching him on a train on a torture rack, he's going to start talking, and I don't think anybody can really hold that against him. No, but you, you kind of think, like, if you think about the 1600s, you, you kind of think that the use of torture would have been all right, but even back then, they kind of knew that torturing somebody to get a confession was really no use, but I don't think that anybody survived the rack, basically. I think the rack broke everybody as far yeah, as I'm like, once you're on the rack, you were absolutely fucked. So we're getting to the end of this, so we're past fireworks night now and we're on to November the 6th and Fox is still sort of maintaining his silence. Um, the fugitive, the fugitive, the fugitives um, raided Warwick Castle um, for supplies. So they were, they were on the rob because, this is going back to the podcast, I don't know if you remember this, like basically... Like once that happened, they fled, but they didn't tell everybody that oh we fucked up. They were trying to like gain. They were like chapping doors, saying, "We've All done right, it, we've done it, we've done it, we've done it." And everybody was like, "Fuck off!" <laughs> like I don't <laughs> care if you've done it. I don't like even if I am a Catholic, I'm not going to tell people because they'll murder me. So a lot of them told them to fuck off, and they eventually started robbing places. Um, they picked up some weapons, and from there they continued their journey to Huddington. Bates left the group and travelled to Cofton Court uh, to deliver a letter to Catsby, to Father Garnet and the other priests, informing them of what had transpired, and asking them for help in raising an army. Again, please help us, because without an army we're fucked. Uh, Garnet replied by begging Catsby and his followers to stop their wicked actions before himself running away. Several priests set out for Warwick, eh, worried about the fate of their colleagues. So yeah, all these priests are either shaking themselves that they're going to get murdered, or their friends are getting murdered. They were caught and then imprisoned in London. Catsby and the others arrived at Huddington early in the morning and were met by Thomas Winter. Eh, they received practically no support eh, for being associated with the treason, like I was saying there. They continued to eh, hold Betsy House on the border of Staffordshire, the home of Stephen Littleton who is just some new character that's turned up, but he was a member of that is a ever-decreasing band of followers. So they did have some followers, but a lot of them were like, nah, I'm not interested. Whilst there, Stephen Littleton and Thomas Winter went to Pepperhill, eh, the Shropshire residence of Boringale of John Talbot, who was Robert Winter's father-in-law, again trying to get a little bit of support but to absolutely no avail. Eh, they were tired and desperate by now and they spread out um, to some of the now uh, so they spread out some of the now so gunpowder in front of the fire to dry out so there were I think they still had intentions to at least have some sort of weapon to fight against people that were coming to get them um, gunpowder doesn't explode unless physically contained uh, a spark from a fire would land on the, the powder 
and the Flames engulfed Catsby Rock with Grant and a man named Morgan, uh, who was just a guy there, basically. So did they all die? <laughs> yeah, brought down by their own their own weapon, mate. Aye. And hoisted by their own petard. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I never knew that. Like, You think I would have listened to all these podcasts and actually... Put his notes together as well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thomas Winter and Littleton, though, on their way back from Huddington to Holbeck House, were told by a messenger that Catsby was dead. At that point, Littleton left. He did enough. But Thomas arrived at the house to find Catsby actually alive, albeit scorched. So he survived it, Jack. But John Grant was not so lucky. He'd been blinded by the fire. Uh, Digby, Robert Winter and his half-brother John and Thomas Bates had all left. Of the plotters, only the singed figures of Catsby and Grant and the Wright brothers, Rockwood and Percy, remained. The fugitives resolved to stay in the house and wait for the arrival of the King's men. Yeah, so Walsh had like uh, 200 guys basically and they ended up besieging Holtsby um, House on the morning of 8th November. So it still takes three or four days to catch up these guys. Um, Thomas Winter was hitting the shoulder while uh, crossing the courtyard. John Wright was shot, uh, followed by his brother and then Rockwood. Um, Catsby and Percy were reportedly killed by a single lucky shot. So wow. like, poof, pew, must, uh, what do you call that? Shrapnel? Must have been yeah. like that, like it must have blown out. And the attackers rushed to the property and stripped uh, the dead or dying defenders of the clothing, basically just robbed the shit out of them, stole their Rolexes, um, stole their shoes and shit like that. Uh, Grant, Morgan, Rockwood and Winter were then arrested. Obviously quite a big reaction to this going on. Bates and Keys were captured shortly after the Holbitch house. Uh, Digby, who had intended to give himself up, was caught by a small group of pursuers. Tresham was arrested on the 12th of November. He was taken to the Tower of London three days later. Montagu, Mordant and Storton, who remember as Tresham's brother-in-law, were also imprisoned in the Tower of London as well. The Earl of Northumberland joined them on the 27th of November. And the government, meanwhile, used the revelation of the plot to accelerate its persecution of Catholics. The home of Anne Vox at Enfield Chase was searched. It revealed the presence of trap doors and hidden passages, which you'll remember she'd been using to house priests illegally and stuff as well. Yeah, she had indeed. Like, so like, all these people were caught, basically, and then what What do you do? You interrogate them back then. Um, Sir Edward Coke, like C-O-K-E, basically, uh, was in charge of the interrogation, so he's like the, the chief interrogator. Uh, over the period of about 10 weeks uh, in the lodgings at the Tower of London, um, he questioned those who had been implicated in the plot. For the first round of interrogations, no real proof existed that these people were tortured, although several occasions sales were certainly suggested that they should be. So again, torture is illegal, so they are torturing, but there's no like, it's not like anybody's wrote it down, basically. But Coke <laughs> did later reveal that the threat of torture was, in most cases, enough to basically elicit a confession from, from those caught up in the aftermath of the plot. Uh, what, what happened next then? There's only two confessions printed in full. Fox's confession of the 8th of November and Winter's of the 23rd of November. Having been involved in the conspiracy from the start, unlike Fox, Winter was able to give extremely valuable information to the Privy Council. The handwriting on his testimony is almost certainly that of the man himself, but his signature, Jack, was markedly different. Uh, Winter had previously only ever signed his name in a certain way. Uh, Winter, W-I-N-T-O-U-R. But his confession is signed Winter, W-I-N-T-E-R. And since he'd been shot in the shoulder, the steady hand used to write the signature may indicate some measure of government interference, or it may indicate 
that just writing a shorter version of his name was less painful. I don't know. Uh, but Winter's Testimony makes no mention of his brother Robert. They were both published in the so-called King's Book, a hastily written official account of the conspiracy published in the late November of 1605. Yeah, I think I think the, the, the basic thinking behind that is these guys had signatures and they were tortured that badly that they couldn't sign their name as good anymore, basically. Uh, back to the Earl of Northumberland. He was in a pretty difficult position at the time. Um, his midday dinner with Thomas Percy on the 4th of November was pretty damning evidence against him. And after Thomas Percy's death, there was nobody who could either implicate him or clear him. So the Privy Council suspected that Northumberland would have been uh, Princess Elizabeth's protector um, uh, had the plot succeeded, but there was insufficient evidence to basically convict him. Northumberland remained in the Tower, um, and on the 27th of June 1606, was finally charged with contempt. He was stripped to all public offices and fined £30,000 at the time, which even nowadays would be a lot of money, but that was seven million back. Jesus. Seven million quid, and he was kept there until June 1621. Jesus, 15 years in the Tower of London. Yeah, plus getting charged seven million pounds. Um, we were condemned to imprisonment in the Tower, um, Lord Morden and Stoughton, um, and they remained there until 1608 when they were transferred to Fleet Prison. Um, both were also given pretty significant fines at the time. Several other people not involved in the conspiracy but known or related to the conspirators were also questioned. People like Northumberland's brothers, Sir Alan and Sir Jocelyn Percy, they were arrested. Lord Montagu, who had employed Fox at an early age, and also met Catsby on the 29th of October. He was there for a person of interest. He was released, though, several months later. Agnes Winman was from a Catholic family, and she was related to Elizabeth Fox. She was examined twice, but the charges against her were eventually dropped. Percy's secretary, and later the controller of Northumberland household, a guy called Dudley Carlton, had leased the vault where the gunpowder was stored, and consequently he was imprisoned in the tower as well. However, Salisbury believed his story and authorised his release in the end. Yeah, so after all this sort of interrogation and stuff like that, there's obviously executions, and I think we'll just uh, we'll quickly cover the executions, and I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there, mate. So, Catsby and Percy escaped the executioner. Their bodies were exhumed, so and then decapitated <laughs> their heads. So they died, and then they dug, they dug them back up, basically, and their heads were exhibited on spikes outside the House of Lords. Um, imagine that nowadays, you know, you just... Don't fuck up or your head will end up there. And on a cold um, January morning, Edward Digby, Robert Winter, John Grant and Thomas Bates were tied to hurdles, which were like big wooden panels, and dragged through the crowded streets of London to St Paul's Churchyard. Digby um, was the first to mount the scaffold, asked his spectators for forgiveness and refused the attention of the Protestant clergyman. He was stripped of his clothing, uh, wearing only a shirt, climbed the ladder to place his head through the noose. He was quickly cut down and, while still fully conscious, was castrated, disemboweled and then quartered, so hung down and quartered, along with three other prisoners. The following day, Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rockwood, Robert Keyes and Guy Fox were hung, drawn and quartered opposite the building they'd planned to blow up in the old palace yard at Westminster. Keyes did not wait for the hangman's command and jumped from the gallows himself, but he survived the drop and was led to the quartering block. And although weakened by his torture, Fox managed to jump from the gallows also and break his own neck, thus avoiding the agony of the gruesome latter part of his execution. 
Stuart Littleton was executed at Stafford. His house, his cousin Humphrey, despite his cooperation with the authorities, met his end at Red Hill near Worcester. And Henry Garnett's execution took place on the 3rd of May, 1606. Yeah, so it took like, what, eight, nine months to gather all these guys up and then just fuck them up, basically. It's yeah, that's that's how long justice took to serve. Um, it's an interesting story, Jack. I, 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 I've I enjoyed us going through our notes and I thought about it far more than I enjoyed those. It's always a history, or whatever it's called, people. Um, it's the more you read about it, the more you get into it. Guy Fox is the public face of this, right? Guy Fox was the guy that was going to set it alight, but when you actually read into it and look at it all, he really was just a guy basically lighting a match. He doesn't seem to be much of a conspirator, it wasn't his idea. But he has all the glory, doesn't he? If you think about about the 5th of November, you think of Guy Fawkes. Um, That is apparently where the phrase fall guy comes from. Um, Because he was basically, he was going to be the one that became the fall guy for this because he was the one actually holding the match. And that is probably where that phrase comes from, I do believe. Yeah, I think like, you've been of a certain age. Do you remember back when you were much, much younger, like Penny for the Guy? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Dressing up as a a guy, and obviously you would get all the money, and then burn them basically on box on on bonfire night. Well, from what I remember as a youngster, it was when penny for a guy, you would like have like almost like a scarecrow, and like yeah, a, it used to be like a shopping trolley or a a, a wheelbarrow or something like that, and you would um, ask for a penny for the guy. That started back in the day as extortion, basically. So it was like a really threatening thing, right? Like, okay. Give me a fucking penny for the guy. And then obviously that um, came into sort of general consensus in Britain. And that's basically been took over by Halloween and trick or treating. This is right, basically okay. the same thing. And we, we, we've been Americanized um, by Halloween because obviously they're only a few days apart. Um, and Halloween's took over from penny from the guy where you would get um, money or chocolate or whatever when you were younger but I remember doing Penny for the Guy like do you ever remember the wee tiny like the wee go-karts that it was like a, a bicycle but a go-kart so you would yeah, sit yeah. down and you would pedal it we used to push a guy about in that um, that makes sense that's a good during, way to it during Govan years ago like 30 years ago I must have been I moved away from Govan when I was 6 or 7 so yeah I thought at least 30 years ago before I'd done Penny for the Guy but yeah that's where that yeah. comes from and Fall Guy comes from that as well yeah I tell you one one thing I do take from this, and this might not be this might not be popular, right? But speaking as an atheist, right, who's got no love of God, no real feeling, no real, no real dog in this fight, so to speak, right? It's this is an example of religious hatred, and which could potentially have led to the death of thousands and thousands of people, right? This is a proper terrorist attack that thankfully failed, right? However, I do think it's a bit out of order that we celebrate this every year. Like, we are the, the idea of people going out and setting up fireworks to commemorate the uh, the possible fact that Parliament could have been could have got burnt down, all these people died. I well, they don't celebrate that. that, they celebrate the fact that they get caught. It's a very yeah. bonfire night, is technically um, a Protestant celebration that they get caught. Is it now, though? I don't it's know. Not, it's, not, it's not now, like, I, I don't think anybody out there. Like tonight is looking at the fireworks, thinking I'm so Protestant. I hate Catholics. I don't think it's yeah. anything like that. But that's technically what it is. It's the celebration that they get caught. That that five second sentence you just made is the one that will cancel you eventually if somebody wants to. <laughs> right, <perhaps laughs> so. Yeah. 
I would like to just add to that that Jack was saying what would happen, not his, not his own point there. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not um, like the the podcast that I asked you to listen to, one of the guys on it, uh, Dominic Sandbrook, he's very much um, of the opinion that we should celebrate it and it's part of our history and I kind of, kind of agree with that as well. Like, I don't know. What, 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 do you just stop everything? Like, not everything, but like Christmas, for example, is a very, I don't know, Christian, Easter's a christening. Do you just cancel it? Because back in the day, Christians murdered all sorts of people, or Catholics murdered, or Protestants murdered, or blah, blah, blah. Do you? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of feel like you should... You should you should celebrate history, learn about it, rather than just cancel it. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I think we're, what I would like to do is, if you, if we are going to keep it going, then just to go off on a bit of a tangent. No, I don't think um, individuals should be able to buy fireworks and do their own little celebrations. Yes, yeah, I thought they'd really cancelled that this year, but there's a lot of people sort of running about with fireworks. It's mental round here just now, Jack. It's mm. fucking bangs all the time. It's like it's constant. It's been constant for about a week. Um, if they are going to make it available to the public, I think they should only sell them on the day. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think they should sell fuck things that blow up to like eighteen year olds. Yeah, I know anybody that can buy it. <laughs> anybody can buy it that's supposedly over eighteen. Like I remember years ago being a wee dickhead and used to buy the the whistle rockets, basically. Yeah. Bang the whistle bangs, um, and you could buy ten of them for a pound out of. Like your local corner shop, basically, and we did that with my fourteen. We would snap the stick off, dick set it, and then just throw it, yeah, and just run away, man. Totally we dick were, when we were younger. We yeah. we bought we bought boxes of rockets one year. We're probably about twelve, thirteen, or something like that. And we went down a lane, and this lane was like side on with a house that had a garage, and basically one side of the start of the lane was this person's garage, and it had a gutter lying along it, the gutter to the roof of the garage. Uh-huh. We snapped off the front of the gutter and pointed it up the way so we could use it as a launch pad for rockets. Right? So we, yeah. we were putting rockets in a gutter, setting fire to them, and just watching them go up in the sky. It was so stupid, such a waste. Yeah, and you used to buy the like the, the 10 whistle rockets for a, a pound. You used to come with like a plastic thing you, that you were meant to stick into the ground. And then you would put the wooden stick in it so it would fly up in the air. Yeah. We used to just hold the plastic things and just light Jesus it and just Christ. hold it and just point it about and see it's got to see where it went. Yeah. Crazy so, things, yeah, like I am the same, but now dog owner, cat owner. Um the, the, like one one night a year you can try like my dog's all right, he's a gun dog, you know, he's a labrador, it doesn't bother him, but I know there's lots and lots of dogs out there that don't really like it. And one night a year, like kids can have fun, I don't want to like be the fun place and say kids shouldn't go out and enjoy it, but yeah, one night a year should be enough, not just fucking the weed leak, the week leading up to it, the couple of days after it, and even like, I mean, we both, we both enjoy the football, like, see when there's like a decent foot, like, like there was fireworks going off a couple of months ago around about here, and it's, it's a bit much, I think, it's you know, it's a bit much. But we've, uh, we've been we've been quite serious today in this pod. It's not had a lot of, a lot of laughs, a lot of fun, right? So I'm going to just end on something that I quite like, Jack, yeah. which is loosely based on what you've just said. You talked about not wanting to ruin children's fun, right? Mm-hmm. So you've listened to us for an hour. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed it. Something I've found enjoyable this week, something that's made me laugh, made me very very happy, is someone 
ruining children's fun. It's actually somebody making children really, really unhappy, right? So get on your TikToks, get on your YouTubes or whatever, and just type in um, washing candy floss, right? And you'll see a bunch of videos of parents giving little kids candy floss, but telling them they have to wash it first. Kids <laughs> wash the candy floss, the candy floss disappears, and the kid cries and cries and cries. <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole on TikTok this week watching about 10 of these in a row, and proper tantrums, tears, snotters, the lot, and I loved every second of it. So check that out. Yeah. Go do that and TikTok about a little bit. Yeah, not a lot of laughs this week, but I quite enjoyed speaking about it, Colin. So, uh, Interesting, mate. Cheers. Yeah, I learned, more, I learned more about that this week than I, I've known my whole life about Guy Fox. So that's good. And I look forward to hopefully regurgitating some of this and sounding really smart tomorrow as the fireworks are going off. And I hear them. I say, you know, there's a guy called Percy and a guy called Gatsby that was involved in this. You know, it's not just Guy. It's not just Guy. <laughs> so, in fact, he was the fall man. Yes. He was. And do you know, by the way, that is where the term fall guy comes from, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, right. Um, and then I'll be told to shut up, but no, always good, mate, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you guys do, let us know in the comments what you thought, and um, what you enjoyed, and whether you think fireworks should be banned or not. That's it, right, speak to you soon. Bye.